The reason to tune into this episode today is that understanding yourself better through neuroscience can help you to embrace your very highest capabilities and have a better and more fulfilling life. All right. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the NeuroFlex podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. If you guys have ever heard of brain mapping before, um, it is a technology that we use here at NeuroFlex that basically is a study of the electrical activity of your brain. It measures the five major brain waves that we assess, delta, theta, alpha, beta, and high beta, and tells you how much of each brainwave you're producing, if you're producing them in sufficient quantities, if you're overproducing or underproducing a certain brainwave, and in which region of the brain that activity is occurring in. So it's a really helpful tool that helps us just kind of assess how your brain is doing, assess your cognitive functioning in order for us to put together a customized individualized protocol to optimize your cognitive performance. So if you're currently in South Florida, uh, we are offering brain maps, uh, mobile brain maps to individuals interested in achieving peak cognitive performance who are in either the Miami-Fort Lauderdale or uh, Tampa-St. Pete regions. So go ahead and check out neuroflex.com. That's N-U-R-O-F-L-E-X.com. You can go ahead and find out more information about QEEG brain mapping there. There's links to a couple podcasts that have been done. Um, with earlier guests on that concept. And you can also shoot me an email, toby at neuroflex.com or shoot me a DM on Instagram at neuroflexflorida. So on today's, uh, on to today's show, we have a very special guest with us, uh, Dr. John Delfs. Uh, Dr. Delfs is a neurologist and neuroscientist who's had a career in both academics along with healthcare delivery. And Dr. Delfs has founded GoodWolf based on the belief that people everywhere should be able to benefit from understanding themselves better through neuroscience. So, uh, John, super excited to have you with us on the show today. It's uh, great to be here, Toby. Thank you for the opportunity. Of course, of course. So you've had a, a really interesting kind of uh, career and just I, I just kind of want to hear, you know, how, how did it get started? Did you always, did you always have an interest in the brain? Um, what, what was your initial uh, reasoning in, in kind of starting to study this stuff? Uh, thanks, Toby. Uh, my interest goes way, 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 way back, really as far as I can remember since childhood. I was, uh, even as a kid, I was, I was perplexed and confused uh, and and wondered why, you know, why do all these people sort of, uh, and, and I had a, this big family, this big community in uh, Amarillo, Texas, where I grew up, uh, and, and they were really all different. And like, even they, like they believed different things. They even had different branches, of they, parts of religion they believed in, et cetera. And it, why did all these people that I cared about and all seemed like smart and uh, why do they believe different things and often argue about them? Um, why, you know, why did people, uh, you know, um, why do my parents and other people who were so good most of the time and seemed so rational and level-headed and, and with such values, why do they sometimes just like lose control and get angry 
right? And do destructive things, right? It, it was really, it was very, very troubling to me. Why, uh, as I got a little bit older, why did the stuff that I saw on television and in movies make me want that stuff, right? Why, why, why was this stuff so powerful? Why did, you know, why did uh, somebody we knew really well and admired become an alcoholic and sort of their life in shambles and not able to control it? Uh, why did some older people we knew began to lose their ability to think and get confused and, and do weird things? Uh, and then, you know, and then why, why did, uh, did we see and treat people who were people but different from us in, in ways that we wouldn't treat the people who were like us? And, and this all was really, really troubling to me. Uh, and it continues, you know, a lot of this stuff continues to be troubling to me. Uh, but I, I was very, very much motivated uh, to try to figure it out. And okay, so and then what were what were what was the order in which everything ended up unfolding? Like what in terms of you had this kind of desire to figure it out. So then what what yeah, kind of so came I, next? You know, I had this. I was, you know, I think most of us uh, can look back and think of how lucky we were to have these various people in our lives who got us interested in things and believed in us and piqued our interest. I had a, I was incredibly fortunate. My next door neighbor when I was like. Uh, four years old to 12 years old uh, was a former science teacher and uh, inventor who had this incredible garage full of all this stuff. And he was all the time inventing stuff. And he had all these science books and everything. And I would go over there and he was just this, you know, this extraordinary influence in my life. So I really became very curious and, and, and very interested in, uh, in science. Um, I, I thought because of my interest in behavior and everything, I would go into psychiatry and I had some summer jobs that were in psychiatry. And, um, and when I, um, I, I, uh, I went to Tulane University in New Orleans, had uh, lots of wonderful teachers. And then I went to medical school in Boston at Harvard and, and had just wonderful mentors who, um, who inspired me. Uh, I thought I was going to go into psychiatry and uh, and then uh, there was this very charismatic guy at, uh, at Harvard who gave these series of lectures on, on the brain and behavior by the name of Norman Geschwind, who became um, a, a major mentor of mine. Uh, and he, he went back in the literature and was talking about, well, if you have an injury to this part of your brain, your behavior changes in this way. If you have a tumor growing in this part of your brain, you begin to believe and feel and think in these different ways. And uh, it was just really fascinating. So I, because of uh, uh, Norm Geshwin, I ended up going in, uh, into neurology. Um, and then uh, I went through the, um, the neurology training program at Harvard Longwood uh, uh, in Boston, and then um, uh, became very interested in basic neuroscience for a while uh, for several decades and uh, and did research on, on neurons and how they connect in systems. So how do neurons from, uh, from brains grown in culture dishes reconnect and how do they talk to each other? Uh, how do neurotransmitters uh, uh, in, and neuromodulators influence their activity? So that was really fascinating. 
uh, one thing led to another, and I got very interested in Alzheimer's disease and uh, also uh, involved in geriatric medicine in addition to neurology. Uh, and uh, so I had lots of opportunities, ended up uh, going to Washington for a couple of years to work on healthcare uh, policy, uh, and then uh, was fortunate enough to be uh, have a few leadership positions in various healthcare organizations. Throughout that time, right up through the last um, uh, position I had as a physician, uh, more recently in New York City at Visiting Nurse Service of New York, where I was chief medical officer, I was continually impressed that what I knew about the brain helped me every day, helped me to understand my emotions, my feelings, my thinking, uh, and that when I would talk with uh, my colleagues and groups of people, et cetera, that it really helped them too. Uh, and then as I uh, increasingly began to um, teach and lecture uh, to the general public uh, uh, in what we know about our brain, uh, I would get the feedback that, you know, this has really helped me. Or in some cases, you know, this stuff we're, that you're teaching about has really changed my life. So I became increasingly convinced that uh, we have a lot of challenges in the world and that to meet them, we have to understand much more about ourselves. And we know so much from neuroscience and related fields about why we feel the way we do, how we process information, why we experience things the way we do, what's necessary for, uh, uh, for good emotional and health and brain health, cognitive health. We know so much that, that it's really essential that everybody should know that, that we should be living our lives with this knowledge, empowered by this knowledge. We should be uh, making public policies based on what we know about ourselves. Uh, and so, um, uh, I uh, formed Good Wolf uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, and we embarked on on that process, awesome. trying to teach people about their brains. Right, right. It it's I love the the concept, and and I definitely want to jump into that in a minute. But before, I just wanted to back up and uh, uh, backtrack to something you said as far as with your with your uh, when you're involved in research and looking at um, neurons. In, in culture and, and seeing how they're affected by different um, different neurotransmitters, different neuromodulators. Like what, what were some of your biggest takeaways from that research? Yeah, that's a, a very good question. Uh, number one of which uh, there is, um, there is a huge, uh, there's huge flexibility in, in how neuronal systems develop. And this corresponds now with what we know over the last couple of decades about neuroplasticity in the brain is that uh, we can change our we can change our brains we can change our neuronal firing and that uh, and that uh, and that the environment whether we think of it as a if you're in a neuronal system in culture you think of it as the chemical and neuromodulator involvement uh, what hormones are around what neuropeptides are around and how does that influence the behavior of the system? Uh, and it, it, the environment causes dramatic changes in, in neuronal systems, uh, in culture, and it changes, uh, you know, our environment changes, it, it causes enormous changes in us, even as the, the, uh, uh, the organism with the most complex of brain of all. Uh, and so, 
a big takeaway is that environment, the, the environment in which we develop and grow and function uh, makes a huge difference in, uh, in, how, uh, in how our neurons work, how our brains work. Awesome. Yeah, that, that's powerful. Um, and then in terms of, so uh, kind of jumping ahead to now what, what you're doing with Goodwolf. So when I, when I kind of explored the website and found the, the, you know, the, the page about what you guys actually do and saw the, the three major areas of engagement that I see listed are organizational culture uh, change, informing public policy, and then personal growth and community engagement. Um, so I was wondering if you could just kind of like touch on each of those categories and, and talk about, I guess, how, how neuroscience comes into play in terms of uh, creating that change or engagement growth, whatever yeah. that might be. So at, at the individual level, thanks, Toby, that's a great question. At the individual level, and, and of course, everything works at the individual level, ultimately, right? And then affects our behavior with each other in groups. But uh, at the individual level, our, our major work has been uh, teaching, teaching courses, uh, uh, giving presentations, having discussions, doing seminars, et cetera. And, uh, and our teaching has, uh, has evolved around uh, what we call the Goodwill Four Steps. Uh, and we can talk about the neuroscience behind it later. Uh, but essentially, the Goodwill Four Steps are that we uh, develop our ability to be in control of our own lives. We call that the first step of achieving self-governance. And other you know, neuroscientists may call that self-regulation. Uh, uh, executive control, et cetera, and those are all parts of it. The second step is a big broad category, which we right now are calling competence. But in, in that category is how do, we, uh, how do we make sure that we develop a, a tr as true as possible and as functional as possible understanding of our world so that in our, in our brains, what we understand now is that we build an active model, an ongoing model of our world in our brain, so that when we have an experience, and we can talk about this more, but when we have an experience, what's happening is that our brain's getting a little bit of sensory information in, and it's triggering our past learning. So what we experience, at least, initially is what's triggered in what we call our mind map or cognitive map, not what is actually happening. Now that's really important for survival, but over time and as you live in an increasingly complex world, it becomes harder and harder to understand the world and to live in a world inside your head, which is where we live, uh, that matches the external reality. And that's really important. Other parts of competence are developing skills and critical thinking skills and, and the abilities to, to use the knowledge, et cetera. But you know, self-governance, which is extraordinarily important if we don't want to be slaves to our genetics and our uh, instincts and our experience. Uh, and then this area of competence where we develop ourselves uh, in, a, in a very thoughtful way so that we can have the most successful lives. And then steps uh, three and four of the Good Bull Four Steps are how do, we, uh, how do we 
fuse that self-governance and our competence with the decisions and actions we take, both as individuals and, uh, and collectively as groups. And so we, we, we talk about the underlying neuroscience, but we bring it into, we bring it into these, these four steps. So in our, uh, in our individual uh, teaching, uh, the neuroscience is extraordinarily important for a couple of reasons. One is that certainly it helps people understand why they feel the way they do, why their experience may be very, very different from the experience of the person sitting right next to them in the same situation. Uh, and, uh, and hopefully making people humble about the fact that our brains aren't really designed to tell us truth. And so we need to listen to each other and work together to try to figure things out. Uh, and, uh, and that for us all to, for us all to do well, we, we need to think about what kind of values will help us all thrive as a, as a population of humans, as a species. And we call those pro-social values. That's not, that's not a particular political or religious slant, right? But it's pro-social values are those values which are good both for individuals and groups and are fair and are just and are help people to have good lives. And so steps three and four are, are making decisions and acting uh, based on um, values that are good for us and others and, and all people. Uh, both individually and collectively. So we teach this stuff in, uh, you know, to individuals. When we work in organizations, we have a, a pilot study going uh, with a, a, a significant uh, provider of uh, services for homeless persons uh, in Westchester County, uh, uh, north of New York City. And uh, we're using teaching about our brains as a way to engage with frontline providers of services for homeless persons so that they can understand that they can develop a part of themselves which can look at themselves we call it conscious metacognition uh, and then and and teaching the neuroscience is not threatening right everybody is interested in the science we're interested in understanding ourselves so we're not saying you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do this, right? So the power of it is that we're teaching about the neuroscience and, and the, the persons who are in, in these groups begin to say, oh, if I slow down, right? If I'm in a situation, I'm getting really upset and emotional or whatever, but if I control those impulses and slow down, I can actually begin to look at myself and say, why was I feeling that way? Is the situation right now warrant that? And often it doesn't, right? Our emotions are often, uh, well, they're very profound and important and important to each of us. And we feel them very strongly when we have them. Uh, acting on them immediately in our, in our modern world is actually not often, often it's, it's not good for us. <laughs> I would, and I so would it gets us into trouble. And so as, as people, as we talk about the neuroscience behind our brain map and our, and our emotions and our experience, et cetera, people grow an ability 
of themselves to begin to look at themselves. And what we found as you, as people grow that ability to begin to look at themselves and think about themselves and think about themselves feeling and think about themselves thinking that that is incredibly empowering and that people become their own change agents and that they become eager to learn more. They become eager to think about how they can uh, engage in growing personally. And we then couple our neuroscience teaching with very practical work on on personal, uh, on personal development and, uh, and group dynamics, et cetera. <clears throat> Excuse me. And in organizations like the organization we're working in this big uh, pilot project right now, then you pull groups of people together, work on it together. They begin to think about, well, how could we change how we do things? <clears throat> how could we change the culture. And, and in this case, we began working with frontline staff and um, the executive leadership of this organization uh, came to us and said, oh my God, you know, there are people who are like growing and transforming. And how about working with our executive leadership? So we uh, began a process over the last year where we have been working intensively with the executive leadership and management to teach neuroscience as a way to understand yourself and then think together about how you change the policies of the organization and and the procedures and the ways and and so it uh, we it's a it's been very thrilling um, but it's really using neuroscience knowledge to both open people up to that have them un understand themselves better and then engage in ch in the change process Right, right. I was just going to summarize it by saying, like, it seems like the the neuro, like teaching the neuroscience principles is kind of people understanding the basic workings of their brain and how they're not just, you know, victims of their emotions that they can actually control them all the, you know, all this stuff yeah. that is tremendously empowering. And it's tremendously empowering. Yeah, right. And That's... then uh, we should come back to that. I'll just very quickly say the third part. So that's the individuals and the organizational cultural change. The third part, uh, which we will be embarking on uh, for the first time later this summer, um, is we'll be pulling together an interdisciplinary group called a public policy working group, uh, where we will have uh, neuroscientists and others who uh, are have research information and understanding of the causes of homelessness and, and the effects of the stress of homelessness on persons who are unhoused. Um, along with uh, uh, people involved in public policy, people involved in uh, in, um, in in frontline work and advocacy, and uh, uh, and persons involved in communications and media, in a public policy working group on poverty and homelessness, to begin to think together about uh, how can we use what we know about ourselves from neuroscience and what we know about how, uh, in this case, poverty and homelessness affect brain function, which is the answer is profoundly and negatively. Uh, and how do we rethink? Um, how do we use, uh, you know, how do we also use information on what programs are working and try to bring uh, evidence-based neuroscience informed recommendations for public policy. 
That is so we, we have some really cool work that you certainly do have some ambition. Um, what, what are some of the like biggest, I guess, principles or, or most surprising principles about how the brain works that you teach people that really kind of revolutionizes the way that they see themselves and they see the problems that they're, you know, attempting to tackle kind of besides what we just, uh, just discussed mm. there with emotions. Right. That's a, a really good, um, a really important question. The thing that, um, um, the thing that has resonated and engaged, amazed, uh, caused consternation and, um, and had people sort of say, whoa, I need to think about myself in a different way, right, and grow, um, is, uh, is the question of what is experience? Why do I, I walk into a situation or I'm standing there and somebody walks up to me and says something to me, or I'm in a situation and something happens out there. Why do I experience what I experience? Well, I think in, you know, an evolving principle is, is that what seems to be obvious to us about our brains from having, you know, lived our lives turns out not to be true most of the time. In other words, it's, it seems like what I do is I, you know, something happens or I walk into a situation and I look at it and figure it out, right? And then I think about what's the best thing to do and then I make a decision and do it. That's what it feels to me, right? It turns out that that's not at all what's happening. It turns out that, uh, and, and we have a demonstration with some... Uh, uh, some um, uh, optical illusions, right? Uh, and optical illusions basically work on the basis of, of they, they trigger our experience, but the way we see the optical illusion is not what's there. The way we see an optical illusion is our experience, is based on what that, those images that in sensory inputs trigger. Uh, and in fact, it's the same for all experience. Now, let's say I walk into a room. Uh, it seems like I figure out that it's a room and I figure out what kind of a room and what's going on and what I ought to do, right? But if you think about it, uh, it, it, it turns out if, if we were able to process things in real time like that, something as complicated as that, our heads would need to be maybe 100 times bigger than they are and would take up so much energy that we couldn't feed ourselves enough to stay alive. Uh, and it would take a long time for us to figure it out. When I walk into a room, I take in a little bit of information and, and I, see, I see this room, right? I experience this room, but what I've, all, I've already figured out what a room was like when I was a baby. When I was a baby, I spent months, maybe years, figuring out what a room was. And, and, uh, and since that time, I've probably experienced, I certainly have experienced thousands of different rooms. Uh, and each one is, I've learned about it, right? I figured it out and learned about it. And so when I walk into this room, what, what I experience is what's triggered in what we call our mind map, which is this model of the world that we constantly build throughout our lives in our brain, predominantly in our cerebral cortex. 
Uh, and what I experience is what's triggered. And it may, it's very, very important that our brain works that way because to figure out everything time and time and time again, it'd just be too inefficient. We couldn't do it, we couldn't live. Um, and let's say we, it triggers an emotion, right? Something is, happens that triggers an emotion. Uh, well, it turns out emotions are, again, you know, the thinking throughout a lifetime has been that there are these basic things that are genetically inherited, but it turns out that most complex emotions anyway are certainly learned and they're different from culture to culture. Uh, and so we walk into a situation and emotion is triggered and we feel really, really upset about something, right? Now that's very important because if the emotion that's triggered is abject fear and from hearing a loud noise behind me on what I thought was an abandoned railroad track, right? That emotion and my immediate decision to leap off the tracks, even if I fall 10 feet down there and break a few bones, I've saved my life, right? So this ability to immediately have a, an immediate efficient experience and to have emotions triggered that say something's really important and I need to act, right? Those things are critical for our survival. But if I'm in a situation where I'm at work and somebody comes up to me and says something that I experience as incredibly verbally assaultive and offensive, right? If I get really angry and I call off and I punch that person, right? Uh, that's probably not in my best interest, right? <laughs> so so uh, while our emotions are really important, uh, we have to worry about it. But anyway, we, we, we teach about this stuff and we show these really powerful optical illusions. We show people what the reality of the optical illusion is and then say, okay, look at it again. And now that you know the reality, see it the way you know is real and it's impossible. And so even though you know the reality cognitively, you experience it the way you experience it based on, on the fact that, that the way we perceive things is not just passively. All of our perceptions, there's sensory input coming in, but as soon as it enters our nervous system, it begins being shaped by other forces. By the time it gets into our brain, it's hugely influenced by our experience. And so um, it's what's called top-down control. So uh, you get sensory information coming in and it's processed and everything. And then you have, it interacts with our experience, all of which is not accessible to our consciousness. Another really important thing, the vast majority of what our brain does is not accessible to our consciousness. And, and then when we become conscious of it, there's already been all this processing and our top-down control from our experiences have said, no, that's not how the world works, <laughs> right? It's not the way it seems, it's the way you've learned it is, right? And so you experience it based on your past experience. And that's very sobering. And there's a lot of excellent work. Uh, uh, I think probably the foremost uh, disciple of this is uh, 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 
cognitive neuroscientist named uh, Anil Seth, who, but what we now essentially understand is, is that our brain takes in information, takes in sensory information and triggers all our past experiences and learning and makes a prediction. And it's the prediction that we experience. And so that initial impression is a little bit of sensory information and a vast amount of learning and experience. So our initial experience of anything is going to be uh, our brain's prediction, essentially based almost entirely on past experience. Now, what happens if we can, and we teach this, right? Self-governance. Self-governance includes slowing down. It includes knowing this stuff, right? Knowing what I am experiencing initially or what I am feeling initially may not correspond to the external reality. So if I slow down, I allow my brain to take in more information. Our brain basically makes a prediction and then new sensory information comes in and our brain pays attention to anything that doesn't match with the prediction. So it's loop-de-loop-de-loop-de-loop-de-loop, the prediction getting better and better and better and better and better. Hopefully until it gets closer and closer to what actually exists in the real world. Now we don't create reality, but we do create our experience of reality. And so that, that teaching, Toby, has been the most, the most impactful because it leads, to, uh, it leads to a huge need for us to rethink lots of things. Yeah, I, I could see if, if everyone understood <laughs> that concept, just think about how different the world would, would be. Yeah, um, I, I, so I'm curious, so, so this sort of like mind map that we create, these, these mental representations of things and the way the world works, it's like you gave the example before of, of, um, of walls or walls or doors, um, right? In the sense of like, you know, we, we know, say, I'll use the example of a door. I don't have to think about what it is. I don't think, I don't have to think about right. the fact that I have to pull the handle or turn the handle. You know, it's just, I'm, right. uh, it's just all, auto, you know, operating automatically. And that's a really good thing. As we mentioned, it would be impossible if we had to like relearn everything constantly, like our brains would right. be overloaded with information. Right. But, so, so it's, it's clear that it's like, there are definitely benefits of this system, but it seems like from what you're saying, there's also pitfalls. And I guess the question that I have is, you know, with, with this knowledge now that some of these representations that our brain makes, you know, may not necessarily be accurate and, and maybe very, you know, biased by our previous experiences, you know, what can we do um, to, I guess, sort of correct that or try to see the reality, see the reality of the situation with as much objectivity as possible. Oh, I think I, I think you've just asked the hugely most important question, and probably most uh, one of the most important questions of our civilization. <laughs> right. Right. Because yeah. we grow up in a particular culture, we grow up with uh, being taught various things we grow up thinking uh, our group is great and the other group is inferior and dangerous and right and we grow up with all these things 
Um, and uh, how do we, how do we, how do we grow up? <laughs> Again, how do we, how do we change ourselves to be, um, to be more functional? Uh, and um, uh, I, I think the first thing is to, is, you know, I've often said that studying neuroscience has made me incredibly humble um, because I see the, the limitation, our limitations. I think studying neuroscience has also made me incredibly hopeful because I think our brains are like the most magnificent thing in the universe, without doubt. And, and we have such astounding capabilities that I think we can turn things around. Uh, but, but I think that to do this, so I think it's so hard that understanding enough of the neuroscience and understanding enough of the scientific basis and the studies for having, for understanding the stuff about what experience really is, what emotions really are, all of which are important. Uh, I, th I think to understand it, we need, people need to understand it to be, to believe the need to work on change, uh, on changing their, they, you know, what the, their preconceptions of things. Um, because I think it's not easy. I mean, I, you know, I've talked about, you know, one of the things is to slow down. Another, another thing is to recognize that there's, there's a reason, you know, there are all these studies now that show that diversity on the boards, like with women and other cultures, other races, et cetera, on a board of large corporations, the large corporations nationally and internationally who have the most diverse boards have become the most successful. It's very dramatic research from uh, economics and corporate governance, et cetera. Uh, and it's, you know, once you, once you know the science, that's like a duh. Well, why? Well, duh. Because if you have a group of people actually working together and seeing, having diverse experiences and talking about them and sharing these different views of reality, you become much more likely to be able to grapple with what's really happening. It's like you know you have the old um, the old story of the uh, of the visually impaired uh, people around an elephant, right? They're each uh, they're each feeling a different part of the elephant and having an argument, right? And one of them says, you know, they have a very cold, hard thing that's curved and pointy. That's what an elephant is. And another one is saying, no, they have a long thing that has hair on the end of it and swishes back and forth. That's what an elephant is. And another one goes, no, they have these huge things that are these huge feet that are like tree trunks. And that's what an elephant is. And another, right? Uh, and if you have those people sit down and actually listen to each other and figure out what an elephant really is, they're more likely to make good decisions about how you deal with elephants. <laughs> And, and so if we're teams of people who actually taught or have different experiences, have seen, they've grown up in a different culture and have different life experiences and 
see things differently and we can get together collaboratively and, and we work on this. And this is part of our cultural transformation in organizations is to use this stuff to work together collaboratively. Um, but if you can do that, you become very, very powerful. Your group becomes very powerful because you are much more likely to be dealing with the external reality both in the truth of the external reality and in its various complexities that you might otherwise not even be aware existed, not know that you didn't know. That's very interesting. What, how about in terms of when, when people do butt heads, obviously in, in whatever context, organizations, politics, anything like, what can people do, I guess, based on kind of neuro, the principles of neuroscience on what, what you teach um, in terms of being able to resolve conflicts uh, in a more kind of diplomatic way without, you know, being able to keep our emotions at bay and be able to sort of see, you know, each other's side of the story, see that, okay, this person says that the elephant is this way and this other person says it's this other way and neither one of them is wrong. They just have different, you know, mm -hmm. beliefs or different views than I do. But like, how, how do you get to the point where you acknowledge that versus just being like, I'm right, John, you're wrong. You know, like how, how do we, how do we get there? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good, that's a really, really good question. Um, we were, you know, that one of, I think that it, it's a very interesting, one of the things that we want to do and I'll get, I, it's a really important question, but uh, one of the things we want to begin doing at Good Wolf, because we're very new, we're just really uh, we're getting ready to go live uh, within the next week or so with our with our website, which will be very exciting and Congrats. correspond uh, somewhat to the uh, to the release of uh, of this podcast, which is exciting. Um, but um, but we hope to to be able to over time look at various interventions, organizations, and programs, and say these are effective because. Right, they pay. They whether they do it consciously or not, they are in in synchrony with what we know about ourselves. Our brains are our control systems, right? If we manage our control system effectively, we'll have better lives. And now to get back to your question about the two people in conflict, um, one of the one of the hugely important uh, movements that has been very very successful. Uh, worldwide, uh, injustice and conflict resolution, as you probably know, is the concept of restorative justice. And the concepts behind restorative justice are, are that, um, that crime most of the time is, is, a, is an assault or a break of relationships. And you don't have to know each other necessarily, but if you commit a crime, uh, you have assaulted this person, and you have you have uh, been in uh, in conflict with with your relationship with that community and its rules and how things ought to be done and what's right. Um, and uh, the idea of restorative justice is to work with both the victim and the perpetrator, and have them understand uh, what's going on talk to them, get past the emotional component as much as possible, and raise the possibility of, for the 
for person who did the crime, do they feel bad about it? If they feel bad about what they did, then would they would they like to apologize? Would they like to do something to try to help the person they have harmed? Would they? Is there a way to do restitution? Right? Is there a way for them to apologize face to face? Uh, and for the the victim. Uh, as we all know, one of the terrible things about being a victim of crime is, is that you feel violated and you feel angry. You feel like something has been taken away from you and you may obsess about it. It may, it may ruin your life, not because of the actual crime, but because of the emotions around that, the meaning around it. Uh, and, and so working with a victim, you say, would you like to under guidance to sit down with the person who did this. The person who did this would like to apologize and would like to ask you what might they do to make amends, to do restitution for how they have harmed you. Uh, and it turns out that, uh, that if you're able to bring those people together, that there are hundreds and maybe thousands of stories now. New Zealand has adopted this for the last almost 20 years for their juvenile justice system. It's entirely based on restorative justice approach in their juvenile justice system. And in New Zealand, their rates of, of uh, institutionalization for, uh, for juvenile crimes has gone uh, to down to, I think, maybe 20% of what it was. 20 years ago. And it, it's really been just dramatic, transformative in people's lives. But there's story after story of, uh, of how both people's lives are changed and both people's lives are made better. It's not infrequent that, uh, uh, that the victim will apologize and will, will work to do restitution or get a job to pay back what they've damaged or whatever, uh, and end up seeing themselves in a different way through this process and having a better life. It's, it's not it, been unusual for the victim to understand the circumstances of the perpetrator and to understand how unfair the life of the perpetrator had been and to want to help them. And there are just these incredible stories of the victim becoming the mentor and friend of the person who committed the crime and both and all the lives being changed. Now what that's, we're not talking about a crime in the question you asked, um, but we are working, we do uh, what is called a restorative, uh, uh, counseling and restorative process uh, where we talk with each person uh, and, then, uh, and then ultimately have them think about it and have them come together. They may not agree, right? <laughs> they may say, well, I still don't agree with you. I think you're wrong. Uh, but they can in this process understand where the other is coming from 
understand what was triggered in them, right? Which was typically something that had happened in their past, right? That triggered in them that made this more important than it should have been otherwise. And so uh, if you can do this restorative process, uh, both people tend to grow and, uh, and often form a relationship uh, that uh, was not necessarily, but often form a relationship that, uh, uh, that didn't exist before and that was healthy. That's very interesting. And what we, know from, what we know from neuroscience is not only that what we experience in those times is mostly what was triggered, not was that not was actually happening. Uh, but we also know that, that we're social beings and that uh, one of the things that's most stressful and damaging for our brains is to feel excluded or not cared about. One of the things that's healthiest for our brains is to feel accepted as a part of a group, uh, respected, uh, and one of the really healthy things for our brain, it turns out, is, um, is, is uh, helping other people. There's a lot of research on this, which is just absolutely fascinating. You know, it, it would be really remarkable if this, if that knowledge right there was, you know, in the hands of, or, or being actually applied, you know, in our justice system, because I just think of, you know, what you were just saying of, of people's like, like, need to feel like important or be part of something and like how you know a prison a typical prison is going to make people feel incredibly excluded from society they're tucked away they probably don't have the chance to really help other people you know it's it's something i I remember a few months back i watched there was a there's a netflix documentary series on different it was i think something called like inside the world's worst prisons or toughest mm-hmm. prisons or something, yeah. but there was actually one episode that wasn't necessarily, it, w- it was focusing on a German prison that actually was focused on, on rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought it was so remarkable that, you know, they might not have necessarily understood the, the neuroscience in which they were going about teaching what they were teaching, but it definitely was rooted, I think, in these same principles where it was like people, uh, the the perpetrators of the crimes, you know, they would be serving sentences that they would, you know, be, they'd be having like, say, for instance, if they had, uh, you know, lashed out at someone and, you know, st- in one instance, I think some guy had like stabbed and, and killed another man with a knife, you know, in, in a burst of rage, I think, you know, it wasn't a premeditated thing, it was just uncontrollable anger. And his rehabilitation in this sense was like, he was put like the therapist put him directly in that sort of situation and tried to trigger him, tried to like push him, you know, and like the, the whole, it, it, it makes so much sense to me now that having talked to you where it's like the whole idea was like, you know, figuring out how he could break the cycle of not acting based on that past mind map that past his previous rep, you know, like, you know, experience of, of, something is triggering him all right react and that got him into a lot of trouble and and this was just all kind of rewiring that behavior and i thought that was it was so interesting and now connecting the dots just with what you're talking about it 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 makes a lot of sense to that that would have applications with you know the justice system but but also other interpersonal conflicts as we've discussed it um it really does the um knowing the neuroscience 
suggests that our justice system uh, is based mostly, you know, it, it's based mostly on our understanding of our brain from maybe the Middle Ages or before. Um, we, it's, it's, it's complicated. <laughs> But it's very, but it's very difficult to think about whether um, whether we can really govern ourselves before you know before our frontal lobes are mature, and our frontal lobes don't completely mature until they're mid twenties or later, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. we, we know that uh, you know we know the 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 parts of our brain which are are necessary for executive functioning, for impulse control and organizing our world and, and, uh, and controlling our attention uh, and our behavior, et cetera, are dependent on these systems that just aren't developed, uh, even in your early 20s. Um, and we also know that, um, that the stress levels in various communities um, are so high that, uh, that they impede brain development and brain maturation and if a if a person who has been not really self-governing gets angry does a terrible thing or plans it and does a terrible thing because poor judgment uh, and is put in prison and put in these awful stressful situations it really is further it, it's further destroying that person rather than uh, rather than helping them. And so there's a, there's a huge rethink that needs to be done. So a future public policy working group will be on that. That's, that's exciting to look forward to that. And I, I couldn't agree more with what you just said. Uh, John, we're, we're coming up on to the end of the show. I've, I've really thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with you. And for listeners who also enjoyed the conversation, and want to, you know, get involved or, or just, uh, you know, find out more about this Good Wolf project and, and its launch, like where, where would you direct them to? So uh, the best thing, we invite you to come to our website, which has a simple address, which is www.goodwolf.org, G-O-O-D-W-O-L-F.org. And uh, there you can read about what we do, read about the sort of uh, an introduction to much of this neuroscience and sign up to get uh, to get regular updates on uh, on Good Wolf and our publications as we move forward. Awesome. Yeah, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And and Wonderful. I I just wanted to say, you know, looking as, as I was preparing for this interview, just looking through your website and reading through the different, uh, you know, sections on, on under the science and, and how your brain works and brain in control, staying alive, like all of these things. It's like such, I, I love the way that this information is, is distilled and, and just the translation of the neuroscience into, you know, practical applications, I think is, is just, this was so eloquently done. I'm, I'm, I was really impressed. So I, I, kudos to the, the website. It's awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Toby. Yeah, I would like to acknowledge we have a we have a wonderful team. Uh, 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 my colleague Jay Desasur, who's managing director, uh, uh, Johanna Wald, who's our uh, main editor and strategic director, uh, uh, Greg Morris, who is the um, 
uh, who is our website communications infrastructure director, and uh, Angela Betancourt, who is our communications strategy director. And we have this incredible team. So I want to acknowledge, uh, acknowledge them as well as all the people who are so wonderful to support Good Wolf in its work. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I'm super excited that this, as we mentioned before, it sounds like this is going to come come out right around the time of, of your guys' launch. So I'm, I'm uh, really, really happy to be a, a, a part of that and having had this conversation with you right now. Um, for the for the listeners also who enjoyed the, the episode, I'd really appreciate it if you uh, went over on Apple Podcasts and left the podcast, the Neuroflex podcast, a five-star review. Um, you can also listen to podcasts on Stitcher, uh, Google Podcasts, uh, iHeartRadio, or pretty much any other major audio streaming platform. You can also go ahead and check out our YouTube channel. It's Neuroflex, N-U-R-O-F-L-E-X. There's full podcast episodes along with podcast clips that you can find on that channel. So John, I wanted to thank you, you know, so much for your time and, and all of just sharing all of your knowledge and expertise with, uh, with the audience today. I, I truly, truly enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for this opportunity, Toby. It's, uh, it's really been great to be in conversation with you.